Morning, church. Welcome here. Uh, choir, great job. That was beautiful. And uh, great to worship with you this morning. Uh, it's Christmas season. Um, you know the story? Have you heard the story? This boy is born? Bethlehem? Yeah? You've heard that one? Yeah, you know what? I'm pretty sure everyone in this room uh, is quite familiar with the story that we're looking at over these few weeks. You're not going to hear anything new this morning, I don't think, uh, but I want to encourage you not to turn your mind on aut- autopilot anyway. Um, I-, I-, I believe that what you and I need is not brand new teaching. I mean, if something's a brand new truth, it's probably not true, right? Uh, I-, I think that what you and I need are, um, are-, are reminders of the greatness of old truths, Right? What you and I need are reminders of who we are. And I think that's what Christmas affords us. It's a great reminder. I think our greatest enemy is forgetfulness. The main task of the Christian is to remember who we are. This is why Peter writes uh, a few little letters to the church. For that very reason, in fact, he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, uh, I've written these letters to you as a reminder to stimulate you to right thinking, which is his way of saying, I'm writing to you to stir up, to awaken in you knowledge of who you already are, to remind you of who you are, to remind you of who God is and what he has done for you. And so that's the purpose, I think, of Advent this season. You know, the word Advent just means coming. It's a season where we remember the coming of Jesus into the world. And, 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 and that's the, why, the, the reason I showed that video. Maybe kind of a lame connection. But uh, you're not you when you're hungry was the punchline. And you've seen those various commercials, um, maybe. Uh, but um, Advent is like the Snickers bar. It reminds us who we are. Okay? Uh, and so in this series... As we're going through this very uh, familiar story, looking at familiar characters in this story, we're going to look together at how they responded to the coming of Jesus in their own lives, and then how we can learn from that, how too we ought to respond to Christmas and what it means in the coming of Jesus in our own lives, and, and how, what sort of character that should forge in us as we too receive his coming and so last week, we took a look at uh, the story of Mary. Now, if you, didn't, if you weren't here last week or you dozed off halfway through and missed the second half, I know who you are. I see your faces. Just, you know, just a warning. I know who you are. Um, anyway, you can catch it. It's on the website there. But we looked at the story of Mary and found out you're not you when you're distracted, when you're living distracted, when you're not making fellowship with Jesus Christ, the center of your life. You're not you. Uh, This week, we're gonna look together at the shepherds, but we're gonna get there in a bit of a roundabout way. We can't know how to respond to the coming of Jesus unless we know why he came. Why did he come? Well, he tells us why he came. Uh, In a few different places, in the Gospels, he gives us an answer to the question, why he came. He gives us that answer in Luke chapter 19. At, uh, part of the story of Zacchaeus, when Jesus meets the tax collector, Jesus says, the son of man, in referring to himself, he says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Why did Jesus come? 
He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. So really two different things he says there. First of all, he says that he came to seek the lost. I think that word seek implies at least two things. The first thing it implies is intent. Strong intent. Um, Because when you seek something, uh, it's, it's very purposeful, right? Like Jesus didn't find himself in the manger by accident. He didn't just appear there and go, what am I doing here? Father, can you explain this? Hey, manger shepherds, donkeys, what in the world is going on? You don't seek something by accident, right? It's strong intent. It's a decision. It involves great effort, great perseverance, which is why we don't use the word seek for a lot of things. Like if if you're rummaging through your drawer in your kitchen trying to find the spatula, and your spouse says, what are you doing? You probably don't say, I'm seeking the spatula. You'd say, that's, okay, honey, that's a little dramatic. Okay, you're seeking the spatula. Or, you know, like I, when I'm sitting on the couch, feet up, trying to find the Vikings game, going through the channels, I don't say, I'm seeking TSN. I'm seeking it. No, we don't really say that. Uh, seeking is for something that involves great effort and a pursuit that requires great perseverance. Maybe like a shepherd who loses a sheep. He's got his 99, but there's one that strayed. To seek might be to go out to make great effort to seek out and find that one sheep to bring it back in to safety. Jesus said he came to seek the lost. He left heaven. He emptied himself of all his glory and left all that worship and he came down and he entered the world in the form of a little baby boy so that he could grow up to become a man, so that he could die on the cross, so that he could rise from the dead. Jesus came to seek the lost. It, it It speaks of his great intent. It also, seeking speaks of initiative. Seeking is not a response. It's not about answering. Seeking is about asking. Jesus, when he says, I've come to seek the lost, he's, he's not saying, I'm, I'm like that really nice neighbor who's willing to give you anything he has if you would just ask. Do you have a neighbor like that? Do you have a good neighbor? I think, I think my neighbor regrets that rusty move next door. <laughs> knock, knock, knock. Do you have a hammer? Do you want a hammer there, Bob? Rusty, you don't have a hammer? Really? Okay. I, I had a... I had a great neighbor in Blind River, and uh, he, he said to me, Rusty, anything that's mine is yours. You just come ask, and I did, a lot. <laughs> I came, we came to get an egg on occasion. We came for a, a cup of flour. Hey, Bob, you know, we're out of flour. Can you give us a cup of flour? Yeah, sure, what's mine is yours. A rake, a ladder, different tools. He was such a good neighbor, but that's not seeking, right? Seeking involves not responding, but initiating. Jesus initiates finding the lost. Um, the context in which he says that in Luke chapter 19, where, he, where he's just met Zacchaeus. Do you remember that story? I'm not going to delve into it. Many of you know the story well. I apologize if you don't, but Remember, Jesus was coming to that city and everyone wanted to see Jesus and Zacchaeus was a short man. He climbed up in a tree to see Jesus and Jesus walked into town and then what happened? 
Did Zacchaeus go, Jesus, you're here. I would like to invite you to my house for supper. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I would love that. Thank you very much. I'm going to make time to come to your house. Is that what happened? No, what happened? He comes into town. He looks. He sees Zacchaeus in a tree. He looks at him, and he points his finger at him, and he says what? I must come to your house for supper. Try that sometime. (laughs) I must come to your house for supper. But this is what Jesus says. Zacchaeus, I must come to your house for supper. He's seeking. He's not responding to an invitation. This is the love of God, and it's an, it's an initiating love. God is pursuing us before we ever pursue him. He's knocking on our door before we ever invite him to come. He's looking for us before we ever knew we needed looking for. That's what Jesus means when he says, I have come to seek the lost. And why did he come to seek the lost? Well, he says so that he can save the lost. The purpose of his seeking was saving, which isn't always the purpose of seeking. I mean, you can seek some, you can seek something or someone not motivated by love, but motivated by anger. I'm gonna, I'm gonna deliver this court summons. I'm gonna find you. I'm gonna track you down so I can put in your hands this summon. The judge summons you in his presence. Here you go. You can seek someone for that purpose. Jesus seeks not to condemn, but to save. And this is what we find in John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. He sought so that he could save. When Jesus goes to the house of Zacchaeus, when he insists on going there, when he initiates that interaction, he didn't go to preach judgment, say you are a bad dude and you're gonna be judged. He came to preach repentance and forgiveness so that Zacchaeus might have a new life and might be right with God. That's why he sought him out. That's why he comes to seek and to save the lost. There's two stories uh, in, in the Bible that showcase the saving activity of God. Uh, we're gonna look at these two stories together and kind of uh, in, in parallel. Now one of these stories is a story that m- some of you will have remembered and maybe read and others have never heard the story before. The second story is very familiar and you've certainly all heard it many times. The first story we find in the book of Second Kings in the Old Testament. You're welcome to turn there if you have a Bible with you. We're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 7, starting at verse 3 there. As you're turning there, we will have the words on the screen if if, um, you don't have your Bible with you. Uh, Let me just set the scene, starting in chapter 6, verse 24. um, One of Israel's arch nemesis was uh, the, the country of Aram, the Arameans, okay, And we're told here that at this time, Ben-Hadad, he was the king of Aram, he mobilized his entire army, and he marched up and he laid siege to to Samaria, sorry, which essentially means he encircled it for the purpose of starving the city. We're not going to go in and kill you. We're going to let you starve to death. And so they laid siege to the city, and they were starving the city, and because of that, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head, first of all, why does anyone want to buy a donkey's head? That's, boy, 
I'll take a Big Mac, thank you very much. But uh, a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. I guess they were desperate. And a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. So these people were starving. And I won't go into greater detail, it's a little gory, but if you go a few verses down, you find out they are in such desperate need that some mothers are eating their children. Okay, that's how bad it's gotten in the city. So that's the scene. Now if you go to chapter seven, verse three, we pick up the story. There were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. Now they were at the city gate because you know lepers, they couldn't be with other people, they were outcasts, they had to be on the fringes. Normally they'd be outside the city in their own little huts, but because that's where the enemy was surrounding the city, they found themselves in this in-between zone in the city gate. There they were at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we will die. In other words, what they're saying is, it doesn't matter what we do, we're gonna die. So maybe the best of really bad options is just to wander to the camp of the enemy and see what happens. And so at dusk, they got up and they went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that uh, they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. And so they got up and they fled into the dusk and abandoned their tents and their uh, horses and their donkeys and their supper was still sitting on their plate steaming. They just picked up and went. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents and they ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and, and and clothes and went off and hid them. Can you imagine? Their luck. How they must have felt when they came to this city expecting to be cut down by the sword and what do they find? They find a hoard, a treasure sitting there waiting for them. They find all this rich food prepared for someone to eat. Their luck. And so they ate and they drank and they, 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 they took what they found, they went off and hid it. They returned and they entered another tent and they took some more things from it and they went and hid those also and they did this for a fe- period of time. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace and that's what they did. They went back and they shared the good news. And if you go on in the story, you find out that the city was saved and everybody enjoys the plunder. Now as I look at that story, it it reminds me of another story. I actually think that what this story is doing is it's foreshadowing another story. It's foreshadowing another day of good news, which we find in Luke chapter two. Now this is the story you certainly all know well. Luke chapter two starting at verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for... You awake? Cause great joy for... All the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Savior's been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Then the angels, uh, when the angels had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they stayed there. And they stared at that baby. They said, this is amazing. I never want to leave this place. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Let's take a look at these two stories together. I just want to draw out three truths that we ought to see here if we're to live um, with Christmas character, okay? The first thing that we ought to see is that God intervenes in otherwise hopeless situations. God intervenes miraculously. Back in 2 Kings, what happens? This army, powerful army is there killing this city and all of a sudden, because God does a miracle, they just hear hoof prints and wheels turning and armor clanking and they hear the sound of a great army bearing down on them and what do they do? They don't wait to see it come over the hill. They take off and they leave everything as is. Ha! God does a miracle and he saves the people that are eating their own children. He saves them from a hopeless situation. He saved them from physical death. He intervenes. That's pretty cool. But no less cool than what happened many years later that's recorded in Luke chapter 2, which I think shows us a situation that's even more hopeless. People that um, aren't facing just physical death, but people that are facing eternal, physical, and spiritual death. People that are facing an eternity cut off from God because of their sin. People with no hope, with no future, and God intervenes. And an angel appears to shepherds and says, I have good news for you. A savior has been sent. God has come down and he has taken the form of this little baby and this baby is going to save you from your sin. This baby is going to bring you into relationship with God and offer to you eternal life with him forever. This baby 
is a savior of the world. God intervenes. This is what Christmas is about. God intervenes in a hopeless situation. He found us. He came, he initiated, not because we asked, not because we knocked. He came because he loved us and this is what God does. He comes down and he finds us lost, mired in a pit and he pulls us out and he gives us life. Good news. Good news. That brought great joy and great peace that we can have fellowship with God. You've heard that before, haven't you? God intervenes in otherwise hopeless situations, but we ought not to stop there. I mean, that's really good news. But what we've got to see in these stories is that God gives us the good news that we might share it with others who need to hear it. That we might share it with others who are lost and need a savior. The, the, the lepers, they, they, after a period of time, they came to their senses and they said, hold on, this is great. We're enjoying this, but there is a city full of people starving to death. It is not right for us to stay here and enjoy this on our own. We must go and we must spread the word, and so at once they went. The shepherds were told that when they had come and they had seen this great thing, this child who is Savior, what did they do? They went and they spread the word to tell others what they had heard and what they had seen. After all, the angel said, this is good news of great joy for, say it with me again, for all people, for all people. So that announcement to the angels, it it led the shepherds not only to come to God, but it sent them out to go and to share what God had shown them. And we see this We see this in Jesus' ministry and in his words, and and it's all over the place, but I I don't think we recognize it as much as we ought. John, uh, John chapter 20, Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Someone reads the King James Version. That's great there, Randy. That's how you memorized it, right? So send I you. I like it. So I send you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus says when he, when he first calls his disciples, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The Gospel of Mark records it this way when Jesus calls his disciples for the first time. Mark 3, verses 13, 14. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to them, to him, those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to share the good news. We see this pattern over and over again. Jesus, come be with me so that I can send you. Come be with me and then I'll send you. In other words, what we we hear in the words of Jesus and in these stories is that Jesus didn't call you for your sake alone. He didn't call you for your sake alone. Tap the person on your left or right and say, Jesus calls you. Some of you aren't doing it. You're just, you're like, I'm not doing that. I don't know that person. Or, Jesus, tap the person beside you and say, Jesus calls you. 
And then say, but not for your sake alone. Tap them again and say, but not for your sake alone. Got to keep you awake somehow. You see? Okay. Jesus didn't save you for your sake alone. Everyone God saves, he sends. He sends. Like the lepers, I think sometimes our tendency is to maybe forget that we can become so wrapped up, we can become so absorbed in this great treasure that God has just plunked in our lap. And we can enjoy that and be absorbed by it and forget that we have a responsibility to go and share the good news with others that they might experience it as well. We sometimes forget that we have the responsibility to spread the word and to share the wealth. And I think that's true. The longer you're a Christian, I think, as I observe, the more prone you are to let this happen. The longer you're a Christian, the more prone you are just to spend time with Jesus and just small in your circle. There's a better word than that. Make your circle smaller. Right? Find this holy little huddle where you enjoy the treasure and the riches of salvation of Jesus. But Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I didn't save you for your sake alone. Our call then as those who Jesus has called to come to him is to seek the lost and to share the good news of God's salvation with others. That means a few things. That means, first of all, we gotta marvel in our own salvation. You're not really gonna share news you just don't think is that great. You need to marvel. If you're saved, if you put your trust in Jesus, if you've been forgiven of your sins and been given new life, eternal life through Jesus Christ, been brought into fellowship, made a son or daughter of God, you need to marvel in that. In fact, Jesus says when he sends out the 70, we find in Luke chapter 10, he sends 72 disciples out to do what he had called them to do, right? Come be with me and then I'm gonna send you out to share with others. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 70 uh, to do his work and some really amazing things happen. Like people are healed, they're healing people in the name of Jesus and, and, and demons are being cast out and they are so pumped up about what God does through them. They come back, we're told, and they're just rejoicing in what has happened, what they've seen. And, and so they return to Jesus. We find in verse 17 of Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus says in verse 20, a few verses later, well, he says in verse 19, he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know what he's saying? He's saying, guys, never forget, the greatest miracle is the miracle of your salvation. That is the greatest miracle. Right? That is what you ought to rejoice in anything, more than anything else. The miracle of our salvation. So for some of us, we just we need that restored. We need the joy of our salvation restored. We need to marvel again at that great miracle that God has wrought in our lives. 
first of all. And then secondly, we need, we need to see people as lost. Is that how you see people around you? You know, at school, maybe in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. When you think of Jim, that good neighbor, or that good friend or coworker or whatever. Jim, good man. You know, he's a plumber. Got a few kids. Got a so-so marriage. Loves to fish. Jim, right? When we look at Jim, when we look at others around us, do we see their need of a savior? Do we see people the way Jesus saw people? Do we see them as lost? Because how you see people shapes how you respond to people. Do you see people in need of the good news? First and foremost, how you see people shapes how you respond to people. So you can see people a few ways. You can, like I just described Jim, we can just fail to see that that person has a greater need, has a greater problem in their life. We can just fail to see that people as lost. And if, and if we don't see that, then there, there'll never be a sharing. Or, instead of failing to see that people have a problem, we can see people as the problem. I was reading uh, an article uh, about a guy in London, England, I think. Uh, he, he owns a, a grocery store. His name's Sohan Singh. And, uh, I chuckled as I read this. He's banned customers from his grocery store. He told a, a, a newspaper that he was forced to take drastic action because of people's bad manners. First, he banned smoking. Then he, then he banned crude language. And then he banned baby strollers. And then he banned pets. And finally, he banned the customers themselves. Shoppers must now look through the window to spot items that they want and then ring a bell to be served through a small hatch in the door. I have lost business, he says. I can't say how much, but I am a man of principles. And I stand by my decision. And you look at that and you say, I think you lost the plot. A grocer who bans customers from his store has lost sight of his purpose. And I wonder how many Christians and how many churches really you could say the same thing about have lost sight of their purpose. Right? They begin to see people as the problem which they need to separate themselves from to stay in a holy huddle. Right? I think that's how the Pharisees viewed Zacchaeus. They wanted nothing to do with the guy. Zacchaeus was the problem. He was a tax collector. He was a thief. Um, everybody separated themselves from Zacchaeus, except for Jesus. Because Jesus didn't see Zacchaeus as the problem, he saw that Zacchaeus had a problem. If you see people as the problem, you're gonna treat them with contempt. If you see that people have a problem, like Jesus, you're going to have compassion. And Jesus looked out at a sea of lost people, at a world of lost people, and he had compassion. How do you see people around you? Who has God placed around you? Our relationships that we have, our encounters with people, they are not social accidents. They are divine appointments by a sovereign God. Do you believe that? Who has God placed around you? 
Is that how you see people? So we have to see before we can seek. And when we see then, we must seek as Jesus sought by taking initiative, by going. That's what going means. Jesus never said, hey, be available when they come to you. The story doesn't go that the lepers are eating and someone else stumbles across them and says, hey, what do you got there? And they said, hey, we got turkey. You want some? The story in Luke chapter two doesn't talk about shepherds who are marveling around the manger and then others wandered wandered around and said, hey, what are you guys looking at? And they said, Jesus, he's a savior. You should take a look too. Come look. That's not how the stories go. They saw, they experienced, and then they went out. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I call you to me so that I can send you out to share the good news that you might take initiative to go and not just willing to receive. That's good, but that's not seeking. And hey, going, that can be costly. That can be uncomfortable. That can feel unsafe. But aren't you glad someone came to you? You know what? Every one of you is here because someone sought you. Did anybody come to faith because Jesus Christ appeared in a dream and said, hey, my name is Jesus. This is what I've done for you. Would you like to receive me? Any hands? No. Every one of you is here. Every one of you heard the good news because somebody went. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe that looked a little bit different. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a neighbor. You know in your life what that, and maybe it was a few people. Maybe it was a period of time as God used a few people that went to bring you into fellowship with him. But every single one of you is here because someone went. God wants each of us to be that for someone else. And and some of you are going to say, and I know what you're feeling right now, I couldn't do that. I know what you're talking about. I even totally agree with you, but not me. Someone else. Someone who's more highly educated. Someone who's more experienced. You, Rusty, you. You know what happens when I come around? The pastor, go, 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 go. It's the other aisle. Go, go. Come on, kids. The pastor. Now, that doesn't happen a lot, but you know what? It happens at times. <laughs> and sometimes it's you. So, you know who you are. Shame on you. <laughs> no, 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 no. God has ideally equipped you, if you know the good news, if you receive the good news. God has ideally equipped you to share it with others. Um, because God uses the unlikeliest of people to share the news. Okay, this is the third truth that we see in these stories. God uses the unlikeliest of people to share the news. Again, if God were to deliver the news, something as important as the arrival of his son, that, that best news, who do you think he'd deliver it to? You might think someone with a, with, with a Bible school degree, someone who's a professional, someone who devotes all of their life to serving in the temple, you know what? 
Those priests were serving in the temple. They were praying. They were lighting incense. They were making sacrifices. Those Pharisees were studying their scriptures, awaiting the Messiah when that angel appeared to the shepherds out in the fields. He chose the shepherds. He chose the lepers, the ones on the fringe, the unlikeliest to deliver the good news, to entrust with that good news. I mean, shepherds, they were a, they were a despised class of people. Okay. Um, they had an unsavory reputation. In fact, I came across an ancient source uh, written in Jesus' day which said, quote, there is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. My dad was telling me um, this week how uh, he had been in Israel a few years ago and they had taken him on the tour to go visit the, um, these Bedouin shepherds and the guide said, watch out. They're going to try to rob you. Okay? Make sure you always keep your hands on your stuff because they, they got their little tricks and so my dad said he went, he went to these shepherds and, and they were trying to sell him, you know, like those hats with like those Arab hats with the ring and the cloth goes back and hangs back but they put it so that the cloth is hanging over his eyes and they want you to try to take your hands and adjust it. And as soon as you take your hands to adjust, they raid your pockets. My dad knew this. And so his hands were in his pockets and they put the hat on like this. And then they left it there, waiting for my dad to readjust the hat. But he never did because he had been warned that shepherds have a reputation. And it was no different in Jesus' day. Right? This was a bit of an unsavory crew, a bit of an unlikely crew for a, the angel to come to to announce the best news in the world. And yet God uses the unlikeliest of people to share the good news. The worship team can come on up here this time. Um, They didn't have it all figured out. And we don't have to have it all figured out either. I mean, they... The the lepers didn't know why that army had fled. Like, what happened there? I don't know. All I know is that I have eaten... All I know is that my belly is full. All I know is what I have seen and experienced. And same with the shepherds. I don't know about this other stuff, but I know what I have seen. And I know what I have experienced. And that which I have seen and I have experienced, I share with you. That's all they did. That's all that God asks us to do. And he uses the unlikeliest of people to share the news. If God uses lepers and if he uses shepherds, then God chooses and delights to choose you, the common person. Jesus didn't save you for your sake alone. So as we come into this season and as we're thinking about Jesus' coming and everything that that means, the question for us this morning is, will we be like the lepers and the shepherds? Will we carve out time and make it a priority to, to leave the feast, to leave the manger, and to go and to share the joy? So what would that look like in your life? So I want you to go, and that's the question for you. I want you to submit that to the Lord and say, Lord, what does that look like in my life? You've called me to go. You've entrusted me with good news. What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to have over for coffee? Who do you want me to make a call to, write an email to? 
Who do you want me to invite to church? Don't belittle the power of an invitation. Who, Lord, do you want me to begin to pray for tenaciously around me? Lord, what would that look like? 2,000 years ago, the shepherds experienced a day of good news that would bring great joy to all people. The Savior has been born to them and to us and to our world to deliver us from our sin and from death and to bring us into God's life. Like that day, today is a day of good news. Today is a good new, day of good news. Say it. Today is a day of good news. What will you do with it? I hope that we will say, like the lepers did, this is a day of good news. Let us not keep it to ourselves. That would not be right. Let us go and let us tell. Yes, let us come and adore him, but let us also go and share him because good news is for sharing. Christmas is for sharing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your love for us, you did it all. We didn't invite you. We didn't ask for you. We were mired in our sin. Maybe didn't even know we needed you. And yet in your love for us, you sent your son from heaven to earth in the form of this little baby. And through him and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, you have made a way for us to come into fellowship with you, to be a part of your family, to have new, lasting, forever life. That is such good news, Father. Just I pray that we would marvel of at, marvel about that in a fresh way, Lord. Some of us, we've known that news and we've had that life maybe for decades and that's awesome, but I pray that we would marvel and rejoice anew today and this Christmas season, Father. And as we rejoice in that miracle you've wrought in our life, that we would receive the responsibility that you've given to us and like the lepers and like the shepherds, that we would be faithful not just to come to you, but to go out and share the good news with a world that so desperately needs us. Father, just show each one of us what that looks like in our life. In Jesus' name, together we say, amen.